Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 16 of the Fantasy Law Guy podcast. I'm Nick Garisco at Fantasy Law Guy on Instagram. Big show today, NFC players to avoid. Let's go. Hakeem dropped the ball! Hakeem dropped the ball! He did what? Playoffs? What are talking about? Playoffs? Who the hell is Mel Kiper? They are who we thought they were. We let them all do it. Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. What the hell's going on out here? Cannot play with him. Cannot win with him. Cannot coach with him. Can't do it. Can't wait. You like that? You like that? Just keep the trickling the ball down the field. I saw, son. I saw. Hello? You play to win the game. episode 14 i gave a list of afc players to avoid and the best arguments for fading these players today will be the sequel part two it's the nfc version of this segment today's show is much more controversial because in the afc show i mentioned six players with adps higher than pick 75 i wasn't taking the easy way out but none of them had adps higher than 28 overall however today Four of my players to avoid are going in the top 28 picks on average. And one of them is a first-round pick. Two of them are consensus second-round picks. So surely there will be major disagreements. But sit back, relax, take it in. And if you don't like my reasoning, well, then you can just ignore my advice. It's your team. But before we do that, let's get into some fantasy news. The New England Patriots have signed Lamar Miller, formerly of the Texans, to a one-year contract. And this is ominous. This is not good for Sonny Michel. The Athletics' Jeff Howe, Patriots beat writer, said that it's too early to know if Michel will be available for week one. So we have to think that this veteran signing of Lamar Miller directly relates to the idea that Sonny Michel may not be able to suit up in week one. And I think that Sonny Michel could be a candidate for the PUP list, P-U-P, Physically unable to perform, that means that he would have to miss the Patriots' first six games. And Sonny Michel, no stranger to injuries. Let's talk about how this affects Michel first before we go into Lamar Miller. Michel's average draft position right now is 96 overall. This is far too high. This is an obvious do-not-draft situation. And based on Michel's extensive injury history, I was already completely out on Michel, as I've stated on prior episodes. But now, you know, if your draft was today, I think he's barely draftable at all. Like, I don't know if there's a single round, maybe like round 16 or 17, I guess, where I would feel comfortable drafting Sony Michelle. And I'd definitely rather draft Lamar Miller. I mean, you can say what you want, whether he's a camp body, whether he's just a veteran death signing. He may not stick at all. He may not make the team. But I do think he's probably a better draft bet than Sony Michelle as of now. And we'll find out more as camp progresses. Lamar Miller, as far as he goes, You know, he's a year removed from his ACL tear. He's done the routine, common situation where all the players post rehab videos and how explosive they look after their injuries. So he's been posting videos about how he's full speed now. I typically like to avoid players coming off uh, the ACL tears in year one because I think even if they're quote-unquote healthy, I don't think they fully regain their 100% explosiveness until year two. And that's just, I'm no doctor, but that's just been my opinion. And it's a strategy that has worked uh, far more often than not with, in terms of fantasy football success rate. And, you know, Lamar Miller used to be a speedy back who was capable of playing on receiving downs, but he lost his explosiveness in Houston even before the ACL tear. He was so inefficient as a bell cow back for Bill O'Brien for a number of years. And I think if he has anything left, he'd best be used as like a rotational player who got 10 to 12 touches per game. And he might have been used that way anyway because Bill Belichick has a tendency to favor running back by committees, at least lately. And I mean, right now, Lamar Miller may be my favorite Patriots running back. And when I say favorite Patriots running back, I mean the one, not the best, James White's the best, but the one that I'm most likely to end up with on my teams if I drafted today is probably Lamar Miller. Because I'm not spending a ninth-round pick or eighth-round pick on James White and Lamar Miller, you know, I, I could take him in the, as a flyer in the last few rounds, hope that he sticks. But again, we're going to get more information as camp progresses. He could just be a camp body. We, we don't really know. But what we do know 
or we, we can safely assume at least, is that this is not exactly a ringing endorsement for Damian Harris, who the Patriots drafted in round three last year out of Alabama, and he had a grand total of four carries as a rookie, and that was despite the health issues and pure ineffectiveness by Sony Michelle last season. He was one of the least efficient running backs in the entire league last year, yet Damian Harris still couldn't get on the field. So what does that say about him? It says that I am not interested in him from a fantasy perspective. So let's move on to the next bit of news. Saints running back Alvin Kamara tore his knee. That was the exact quote in week six, and he was dealing with it for the whole season. And Alvin Kamara talked about on my Saints preview podcast episode. I think that was episode seven. Alvin Kamara dealt with a litany of injuries last season, and he played through most of them, except for a high ankle sprain, which caused him to miss two games, but it probably affected him in other games. High ankle sprain is usually a four to six week injury, but he also had back injury, uh, sorry, back issues, and he had a knee tear, apparently. And that's what this new report is saying. Alvin Kamara himself on his, it was either Instagram or Twitter, said that he was running on one leg, quote unquote, last season. And running backs coach Curtis Johnson said that the earlier this offseason that Alvin Kamara was only 75% healthy. And he got banged up after this, in the Seattle game. That was week three. And the efficiency and tackle breaking metrics do kind of support the idea that week six was... That was kind of the breaking point, I guess, for Alvin Kamara. And that's where his production, at least in terms of tackle breaking, did fall off. Dr. Edwin Porras at FB Injury Doc on Twitter, fantasypoints.com is where he works for. And he claims that Alvin Kamara tackles force per missed touch. Sorry, tackles force per touch. In weeks one through six pre injury, Alvin Kamara ranks second best in the league at 0.319 tackles force per touch. And in weeks 10 through 17 post-injury and post-returning from that high ankle sprain as well, Alvin Kamara ranked 39th of 52 running backs in this sample at .135 tackles force per touch. That's tough to say for some reason, but it does kind of show that Alvin Kamara's, at least his tackle-breaking ability, was hampered by this alleged knee tear. Or it could have been other injuries as well, but week six seems to be that kind of that cutoff to where his tackle-breaking ability dropped off. So if we go back, what I like to do here is go back and look at the game log when situations like this happen. Because I like to see how Alvin Kamara played in the few games that he was healthy. And that was weeks one through five. He said these, he sustained the, sustained the knee tear in week six against the Jacksonville Jaguars. So I'll leave that out. And if we just kind of get a reminder, get a feel for Alvin Kamara's season pre-injury, and I will go from weeks one through five in my contextualized game logs, which will be posted on my website, fantasylogguide.com, uh, which should be uh, debuting this week, actually. should be launching this week. I think we're like only a day or two away, so that would be excellent. But week one, Alvin Kamara, 23.9 points against the Houston Texans. And this was the only game that Kamara played with Drew Brees for this sample, at least, in the first five games. Because in week two, he only had seven points, and that was when Kamara was victim to Drew Brees' early exit with a thumb injury. Teddy Bridgewater did not dump off the ball to Alvin Kamara. The, the Saints got blown out. In week three, that was Kamara's blow-up game. It was probably the best game of his entire career. And he just put the team on his back. He had 37.1 fantasy points. He had nine catches for 92 yards. I think he had a punt or kick return touchdown. He had a touchdown on the ground, a touchdown on special teams, a touchdown in, um, in the air through receiving. And Alvin Kamara, more impressively, broke 11 tackles, according to Pro Football Focus, which is truly an absurd number. That's only been replicated a handful of times in the last couple of seasons. In week four, he only had 11.9 points, and that was a game against Dallas, low-scoring game where Teddy Bridgewater and company really couldn't move the ball offensively. He did play a season-high snap count of 55 snaps in that game. In week five, 16.9 points, and that was also kind of a quiet day for Kamara. 16.9 points is pretty solid, but the Saints, that was the game where Teddy Bridgewater had three or four touchdowns, and they got the downfield passing game going. So, you know, so his game was kind of quiet from that perspective. But Kamara, it's noteworthy that I found that he had at least 20 touches 
in five of six games going up to the Jacksonville game where he got hurt. And the lone exception was when Drew Brees got hurt in the loss against the Rams, week two. And that was got a blowout loss again. So let's look at the numbers uh, before this knee tear. Alvin Kamara's numbers weren't that great. I mean, they were still pretty strong, but 19.36 points per game. That was only RB8 pace. But he did, only, he did only have two touchdowns in that game. And keep in mind, Drew Brees was only there for one of those games. So you can look at that from a positive perspective. And just for the record here, Alvin Kamara, 15 games, 14 regular season, one playoff game. He was RB9 pace for the full season. And again, that was playing through a bunch of injuries as I described. There are a bunch of great reasons to draft Alvin Kamara. Alvin Kamara had scored 31 touchdowns in 31 career games. So a touchdown a game before only scoring six times in 14 games last season. And Drew Brees' touchdown rate was a career high. And I don't know if y'all know this, but Drew Brees has played a long time. It's a lengthy career. So to say that last year was his a career-high touchdown rate. All of that is to say that massive touchdown regression, positive regression, could be coming for Alvin Kamara. And Kamara, we know what he is in the passing game. 81 catches in the last three straight seasons. That's right, 81 catches in each of those seasons on the dot. So it's fair to project him with 81 catches in year four, I guess. He's not going to get the workhorse volume as the top three picks would. Christian McCaffrey, Zeke, Barkley. But even Derrick Henry and Dalvin Cook, he's he's not going to get that workload. But you're banking on efficiency and you're banking on touchdown progression there. And the Saints are just in such a nice situation. They have a great quarterback who prioritizes getting the ball out quickly and is deadly accurate in the short to intermediate area where Alvin Kamara excels. They have a great offensive line, maybe the best offensive line in the NFL. Great scheme with Sean Payton. Winning team. Plays indoors. Positive game scripts. And they play in a division that the NFC South, quite frankly, just does not have great defenses. And this is also a contract year for Alvin Kamara. So there's a lot to like. And three of my drafts have been set with the in terms of the draft order and everything being determined. In one high-stakes league, I have picked 10 of 12, unfortunately. But the other two that I know the draft order in... I have picked four in both of those leagues. So one pick 10 and two pick fours so far for me in my season-long leagues. Uh, Fewer yet to be determined. But one of those leagues that I have picked four in is half-point PPR. And one is non-PPR, but there's a two-point bonus for every five catches. Which I kind of like because I like that it doesn't reward a point or a half point for every single catch, even if, it goes, even if it goes for like no yards. I like that you kind of have to earn the bonus point for catches because, it, I mean, if you catch five passes a game, then you were definitely involved in the receiving game. But anyway, Kamara is is somebody that I feel strongly about this season. and But I'm also weighing my options specifically at pick four with Derrick Henry, especially in that non-PPR league, where I think you can make a strong case that Derrick Henry is actually a, a top three pick in that format. But in a full point PPR league, I'm going with Alvin Kamara fourth overall every time. And I actually don't think there's a huge gap, if at all, behind Saquon Barkley, behind Zeke Elliott. Like I, I'm, I'm that high on Kamara to where pretty much every other expert has like a, a, a strong tier break after the top three. Like I'm cool if somebody d- does draft in a full point PPR league. I'm cool if somebody does draft Kamara over Barkley or, or over Zeke. I don't know if it's something I do myself, but I wouldn't scoff at it. So last bit of training camp news here involves T.Y. Hilton, Colts wide receiver. T.Y. Hilton said he expects to be back in action in a couple of days. He had a hamstring issue, and he battled soft tissue injuries in 2019 2019 as well. So this was not a good start to his training camp that he's already dealing with uh, kind of a minor hamstring injury. But Colts offensive coordinator Nick Sirianni expects T.Y. Hilton to have a great bounce-back year. And Sariani said, I quote, he's definitely still the main piece of this offense. T.Y. Hilton is who this pass offense runs through. Things will be schemed to get him the football. I know he's worked hard on his body and he's worked hard. He's our guy. If he stays healthy, the sky's the limit again for him. So, great coach speak. I would say that's even better than regular coach speak. Uh, Regular fluff there. Uh, because I like the part where he said, 
things will be schemed to get him the football. That's that's nice. I also liked, of course, that he worked hard on his body throughout the offseason. It hasn't shown up so far because he already has the little hamstring ding, but he claims that he will be 100% healthy. And In fact, when he was asked about it, T.Y. Hilton uh, laughed and said, and like, kind of just laughed it off, like, yeah, of course I'm going to be healthy. So right now is average draft position, 56th overall. And T.Y. Hilton in six games uh, last season before the calf injury, you know, weeks one through three, week five, and week seven through eight. T.Y. Hilton actually averaged 16.33 points a game. And that was wide receiver 11 pace. And again, he's going at like wide receiver 25 in terms of ADP. And it was even better than that if you extrapolate his numbers in a very small sample, the 2.5 games before he exited in week, at halftime in week three against the Falcons. In those first three games, he scored four touchdowns. And he had 25 targets, 20 receptions, 195 yards, and four touchdowns. And the fantasy point production obviously was significant there. 28.7 points, 14.3 points in week two, 25 point, I mean, sorry, 20.5 points in week three, which again, he left at halftime. So Hilton was putting up a great season prior to injuries, taking a stranglehold over his year and kind of ruining it. So I like Hilton at cost. I think you're getting a, a pretty substantial injury discount. He is a new quarterback. Remember last year, those numbers last year, even in limited sample size, they were with Jacoby Brissett. And now he has Phillip Rivers, which I think is a quarterback upgrade in terms of fantasy football. And in real football, I guess, even if Rivers is at the end of the line. But I like Hilton at cost, which is round five. And I will have him ranked above ADP because I want readers of my draft guide to be in position to draft him along with Several other receivers that I like in rounds four and five. All right, that is all the news for today. So let's get into the main segment of this episode, which is the NFC players I am avoiding at cost. All right, the first NFC player that I will very likely not be drafting on my teams is the first one is DeAndre Hopkins. And he feels like a pretty popular fade among the experts. But nevertheless, his ADP is still ninth overall as wide receiver three. And eighth overall on the ESPN rankings, which I think is just far too high. And the first reason I think that's too high is because DeAndre Hopkins only averaged 17.9 points per game last season in his 17 games, including playoffs. And while that is really good, it was only wide receiver seven pace. And yet he's going as wide receiver three. And wide receiver seven production last year was obviously in Houston with Deshaun Watson at quarterback. So the first thing you have to ask yourself when considering DeAndre Hopkins this season, in my opinion at least, is do you think he's going to be better in Arizona than he was in Houston this year? Will he post better numbers with Kyler Murray instead of Deshaun Watson? And I think one way to think about that or to answer that question honestly is asking yourself this question. If DeAndre Hopkins had not been traded and was still in Houston, would you like his outlook more this season or would you like it less? Would you be drafting him as a Texan earlier than you think you'd be drafting him as a Cardinal? So a lot of ways to phrase that question. But my answer to that question is yes. I would prefer that he was still in Houston. So the fact that he was wide receiver seven in points per game last season in Houston, and I'd still prefer him this season to be in Houston, I think it's logical to say that I have to be out on DeAndre Hopkins in Arizona at wide receiver three. But if your answer is no, and you'd rather him in Arizona, then the argument comes down to how much this situation has actually improved in Arizona. And it's it's easy to get captivated by the seemingly perfect fit here. DeAndre Hopkins and Cliff Kingsbury's offense instead of Bill O'Brien's dinosaur offense. Yeah, that sounds outstanding. But unfortunately, things like this do not go often as planned, at least in year one. Historically, receivers changing teams are bad bets in year one. According to John Paulson at 444 underscore John on Twitter, 444.com, a receiver who averages eight fantasy points or more for the last two seasons sees his per-game production drop by an average of 24% in the next season if he changes teams. And this is furthered by the fact that Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins have not had a full offseason to work together. That's an understatement. No minicamp, no OTAs, no preseason. And it's also worth noting that DeAndre Hopkins and Deshaun Watson's connection was largely based on timing and chemistry and back shoulder passes. That's where DeAndre Hopkins wins. That's where he excels. And in Houston... 
DeAndre Hopkins was fed. He was consistently one of the most heavily targeted players in the NFL year in and year out. It was clockwork. And Evan Silva of EstablishTheRun.com, he mentioned that DeAndre Hopkins has averaged 166 targets over the last five seasons in Houston. And it's notable that no other Cardinals pass catcher commanded so much as 110 targets in Cliff Kingsbury's first year. And while what Evan said is true, and it's also true that Cliff Kingsbury didn't have much receiver talent to work with last year, but it's also true that he, Cliff Kingsbury, likes to deploy four wide receivers at a league-high rate. And Christian Kirk will be healthier. Larry Fitzgerald's still there in the slot. And the Cardinals, in the second half of the season, were very run-oriented with Kenyon Drake. Boy, I'm really starting to dislike the Drake. Hate the Drake. And they were the, one of the most successful teams at running the ball. And according to Pat Thorman of ETR, a snap and pace specialist, he said that after the first month of the season last year, the Cardinals ranked 25th in plays per game. And that's something that will shock a lot of people because Cliff Kingsbury, that's just not what you think of when you think of Kingsbury in his you know air raid fast-paced offense. He played extre- at extremely fast pace in weeks one through four, but he slowed down once the running game started gelling. And started clicking. And I do want to say that the fact that the Cardinals defense stinks so badly, it may make Arizona forced to throw. And they play indoors, and we should see a bunch of high-scoring shootouts. And this offense may feed him with a bunch of layups and short passes near the line of scrimmage like they did with Christian Kirk in the first three weeks of last season before he got hurt. And that benefits DeAndre Hopkins in PPR formats. So because of game flow and the creativity of Cliff Kingsbury, it's unlikely that DeAndre Hopkins is a total flop. But eighth overall in ESPN is an extremely aggressive ranking. And it will be very, very difficult for DeAndre Hopkins to return value in round one. There are just too many risks. And I haven't even stated the biggest drawback or deterrent of drafting DeAndre Hopkins at or near his average draft position. And that has nothing to do with Hopkins himself. It's the fact that DeAndre Hopkins is a wide receiver. And based on the depth at the position, and based on the fact that there are numerous wide receivers going in round four that could easily foreseeably outscore Hopkins, it's just extremely difficult to justify drafting Hopkins late in round one or even early in round two. Hopkins does not possess near the ceiling nor the floor of Michael Thomas or Devontae Adams. So you would think that there's going to be this massive drop-off in rankings or an average draft position after Michael Thomas and Devontae Adams go at like 6-8 through eight or 6-9 through nine in your drafts. But you would think incorrectly. DeAndre Hopkins, despite all this, is going 1-2 to two picks after Devontae Adams and ADP. It makes no sense. Again, you would expect there to be a sizable gap after Thomas and Adams to the next ranked receiver. But based on ADP and mainstream website rankings, it's just simply not the case. And not only would I prefer Michael Thomas and Adams over Hopkins by a landslide, I'd also prefer Tyreek Hill and Julio Jones over Hopkins pretty easily. Yet Hopkins outranks them and is drafted before them in most drafts. And furthermore, the drop-off from DeAndre Hopkins to wide receivers that you can pick in rounds three and four, Kenny Galladay. Juju Smith-Schuster, Allen Robinson, DJ Moore, Adam Thielen, Odell Beckham, and then fourth-round guys like Calvin Ridley, Tyler Lockett, Robert Woods. Would it really be surprising if any of those guys outscored Hopkins this year? No, it wouldn't. But would it be surprising if they scored Devon, outscored Devontae Adams and Michael Thomas? Yes, that would be. I would be quite surprised. Anyway, I don't hate DeAndre Hopkins, but he's just far too expensive, and I do not have a first-round grade on him. And I also would find it very difficult to pick him in round two over a lot of those running backs and elite tight ends. So I'll move on here. This next one is a huge name too, and it stings because he was my boy last season, but Chris Godwin, 19th overall ADP. I just cannot get on board with Chris Godwin in the teens. And I'll preface this by saying that I get why there is excitement for Godwin. You know, it sounds like I'm just sitting here bashing all these players and only stating the negatives, but I want to be very clear. There are positives to all these players, and I'm going to open up with the biggest positives for Chris Godwin. I get why there's some excitement about him. John Paulson at 444football.com, he said that whether it was Julian Edelman, Wes Welker, or Danny Amendola, Brady has, has consistently targeted his slot receivers. In Per Sports Info Solutions, Brady had the fourth most targets to slot receivers last season. Chris Godwin had the ninth most targets on slot routes last season for the Bucks, And Bruce Arians has a history 
of featuring his slot receivers too, dating back to the days of Heinz Ward, Larry Fitzgerald, and Chris Godwin last season. So Brady and Godwin look like a match made in heaven on the surface. But there are caveats. And the first caveat is that Bruce Arians said that he wants to use 12 personnel as the Buccaneers' base offense. That's two tight ends, not three wide receivers, which is his norm. And this would indicate that Rob Gronkowski and one of either O.J. Howard or Cam Brate will join Chris Godwin and Mike Evans. It also indicates that as Chris Godwin, who's also a good receiver on the outside, but excels in the slot, and Tom Brady has that would have seemingly have that connection in the slot. It also assumes that one of those tight ends will be closer to the slot than Godwin or Evans. And I've already mentioned the two. T- I've already mentioned three tight ends: Rob Gronkowski, O.J. Howard, Cam Brait, and then there's also Mike Evans. There are mouths to feed in this offense, and I can make the argument that. One reason that Tom Brady targeted slot receivers so much over his history in New England is because other than the season or two that he played with Randy Moss, he didn't have much else at wide receiver. And Tampa Bay has a lot of pass-catching competition. When When you draft Chris Godwin, you don't know for sure that you're even getting the best wide receiver on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Mike Evans could easily outscore Chris Godwin. No one should be surprised if that happens. And while most view Tom Brady as an upgrade or at least as an even replacement for Jameis Winston, I do not. For fantasy football purposes, that is. I want to make that clear. And fantasy football is the game that we are playing. Jameis Winston led the NFL in passing yards last season with over 5,000 passing yards. And one of the big reasons he was able to do so is because he was so aggressive. He threw the ball downfield often. He threw dangerous jump balls often. And he made careless decisions so often that he led the NFL in interceptions with 30. He also led the NFL in pick sixes. And I think it was the most in NFL history, actually. But Chris Godwin was only helped by Jameis Winston's poor decision-making, as crazy as that is to fathom. In fantasy football, a pick six helps wide receivers because people underestimate the impact of game flow. And when you throw a pick six, you get the ball back immediately. No time is taken off the clock. So you get like half an extra possession at least. And usually it means that you get to start your possession while trailing. Because pick sixes usually mean that you're either behind on the scoreboard or it puts you behind. And Winston's 30 interceptions and all of his pick sixes were putting the Bucs in reality in a horrible situation. But in fantasy, they are putting Tampa Bay in a position to throw and to be aggressive, airing it out because they're playing from behind, forced to chuck it downfield in this Bruce Arians offense that preaches vertical passing game. And game flow will not be in Chris Godwin's favor near as much this year because Tom Brady is presumably going to take care of the football. And he's going to smartly pick apart defenses with his short to intermediate passing precision, like he has done his entire career. And not only, and this is not only because of Brady's improvement in playing style, but also because the Bucs are projected to be a better team with a much better defense. The Vegas over-under on wins for the Bucs is, is, is around 10. And I also feel like it's being ignored that Tom Brady will be playing in a new offense. And even though he's been illegally sneaking in practices during COVID. He has not had time to develop the chemistry and real connection with these receivers, his offensive line, play calling, etc. Tom Brady, you have to understand, Tom Brady had mastered the New England offense. So there's an inherent risk of Tom Brady and Chris Godwin or his receivers not having a rapport. And in addition, there's also a real risk that Tom Brady falls off. He's 43 years old. And it's going to happen at some point. And nobody seems to be talking about that possibility this offseason. I don't know why. Maybe it's because of the change of scenery. Maybe it's because people are tired of being wrong when when it comes to predicting Brady's demise. I feel you. But look at the numbers last season. Tom Brady, 17 games, including playoffs. Tom Brady, for fantasy football, only 15.51 points per game. Quarterback, 21 pace. Quarterback, 21 pace. And you may be thinking right now, well, that's because he had really no one to throw to in New England. But you should know that in the final 11 games, Brady did fall off. And you can blame it on whatever you want, injuries, what have you. But in the final 11 games last season, including playoffs, Tom Brady only 14 touchdowns in only one 300-yard game in the final 11 games. He scored 13.64 fantasy points per game in the final 11 games. It's a big sample size. QB 29 pace in the final 11 games. QB 29. Few, that is Lower than Mitch Trubisky. Lower than Andy Dalton. No way! I don't believe it! So we just can't confidently say 
that Tom Brady's decline in statistical production in the final 11 games last year wasn't related to his arm getting tired. I'm not tired. Or deteriorating arm strength over the course of the season. But it could have been. We don't know. And that's exactly why it should worry us. Brady finished very poorly. And we just don't know if it was the beginning of the end. Who can say where the road goes, where the day flows, only time. So I get that we want to project Chris Godwin high because he's the slot receiver in this Tom Brady offense. But I'd rather have Mike Evans in round three than Godwin in round two. Both are great talents, but that's just a ton of risk for a second round pick ton of risk associated with Chris Godwin. And again, it's not evaluating the upside and the risk at a premium position like running back. I'm not nearly as comfortable with the running backs in round three and four as I am with the ones in rounds one and two. But the wide receivers, I have no problem taking several in rounds four through six. So the risk with Godwin at a deep replaceable position like wide receiver is not justified. And for all we know, if not for any other reason that I've stated so far, we don't know if Chris Godwin just peaked statistically last season. Be careful, it might be a trap. Much better start than finish last season. He, he kind of took the league by storm. When he opened the season, the first six games, Godwin averaged 24.87 points per game. Wide receiver one pace ahead of Michael Thomas. And in the final eight games, Chris Godwin averaged nine points fewer, 15.86 points per game. That was wide receiver 15 pace. So it's not like defenses figured him out, but he didn't quite catch them by surprise after a really, really hot start. They're on me. I'm getting careless. So Godwin's going to be a pass for me this year, at that cost at least. So, And right after you pass on Chris Godwin at 19 overall on average in drafts, you can also pass on the next player, and that is Aaron Jones at 20th overall in average draft position. And going into last season, everybody wanted the Packers to free Aaron Jones. And that's actually exactly what they did. They listened. I don't know if they actually listened, but they did it. And they did so in a major way. Aaron Jones finishes the RB2 on the back of a whopping 19 touchdowns last season. RB2, Aaron Jones. People forget that. However, you might think to yourself, oh, he finishes the RB2 and he's going at 20th overall in ADP. I mean, come on. He's actually a value. But the reason experts are privy to Aaron Jones being picked so late is because a lot of Aaron Jones production last season was based on touchdowns. Aaron Jones had 19 touchdowns in 2019. And according to Mike Clay of ESPN.com, his opportunity touchdowns based on the amount of carries and receptions that he had and where he had those receptions and carries, his opportunity touchdowns was 10.8. In other words, Aaron Jones's Touchdown total should have been closer to 11, not 19. And Green Bay's lead back, according to Clay, checks in as the sixth luckiest in his sample of 7,362 players since 2007. Jones ranked seventh in the league with 13 carries inside the opponent's five and scored on 11 of 19 carries within seven yards of the end zone. So great stuff there by Mike Clay, which indicates that Jones could be due for massive Massive touchdown regression. And and his head coach, Matt LaFleur, is headstrong on being able to run the football despite the presence of Aaron Rodgers. But at the NFL Combine, Matthew Barry of ESPN.com asked Matt LaFleur whether Aaron Jones showed something this past season, especially when Jamal Williams went down with an injury, and whether Jones could handle a bigger workload. In other words, could Jones be a workhorse, Barry asked. And Matt LaFleur said, not only... Did they need both guys, meaning Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams? But ideally, they'd add a third running back. Yikes. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. And unfortunately, that's exactly what the Packers did when they spent their second round pick on a running back. A pick that everybody and their grandmas thought was going to be used on a wide receiver. But no, the Packers decided not only to add a third string running back, but a 247-pound bruiser back in A.J. Dillon. The guy's built like Derrick Henry. 
And regardless of what you think about Dylan's role as a rookie, especially in a COVID-shortened offseason, at the very minimum, we have to acknowledge that A.J. Dillon is a threat to vulture touchdowns at the goal line. The same goal line that Aaron Jones made his living at last season. A.J. Dillon is huge. And that's at the minimum. At the maximum, A.J. Dillon overtakes Jamal Williams' role, who kind of faded down the stretch last season. But even if he's slow to develop, the goal line role was where Aaron Jones made himself so valuable in fantasy football last year. And last year, only five running backs had more carries at the goal line than Aaron Jones. He was one of two backs, the other being Zeke Elliott, to score 10 times from that area of the field near the goal line. So it was more than fair to say that Aaron Jones was due for significant touchdown regression before the draft. And now that the Packers added a 247-pound bulldozer back, the case is even stronger. And one of the reasons that the Packers refused to feed Aaron Jones, who has always been so efficient with his touches, was that he couldn't stay healthy as the lead back before last year. Last year, Jones did manage to stay healthy, of course, but the concerns for injury risk should not disappear. Health regression is a factor with Jones, too. And speaking of health, Aaron Jones took advantage of the other Green Bay Packers who were not staying healthy. In Jones' seven games without Jamal Williams and or Devontae Adams. So in seven games where either Jamal Williams or Devontae Adams did not play, that's weeks four through eight and 16 through 17. Aaron Jones averaged 25.6 points per game. And in 11 games where Jamal Williams and Devontae Adams played, that's weeks one through three, nine through 15, 18 through 19, Aaron Jones only averaged 16.4 points per game. That's RB12 pace as opposed to the Christian McCaffrey numbers that he was putting up in games without Jamal Williams or Devontae Adams. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, Jamal Williams may get hurt again. Devontae Adams may get hurt again. We don't know that. Unfortunately, that upside or that theory is crippled by the fact that the Packers did draft A.J. Dillon, who will take over the Jamal Williams role when, if and when, he does go down. So there's less upside from that perspective. And aside from the Jamal Williams and Devontae Adams not staying healthy, the Packers also had no legitimate wide receiver two whatsoever, and they had no tight end. You know, they may not have these things this season, but I would suggest their pass-catching corpse will be better. And I would bet that Jones sees less work in the passing game. And furthermore, the Packers were extremely fortunate last season as a team. According to Bill Barnwell of ESPN.com, the Packers were 8 in one in games decided by eight points or fewer. One technically one possession games. The Packers were eight and one. But yet, and that had a that had a big that was a big reason why they were 13 and three last year, despite only outscoring their opponents in, in margin by 63 points for the season, less than four points per game. The average 13 and three team since 1989, according to Barnwell, scores more than 9.4 points per game more than their opponent. The Packers only averaged less than four points per game more than their opponent per contest. And it's the worst point differential for a team with a 13-3 record over the past 31 seasons and the largest, the fourth largest gap between a team's win-loss record and expected win-loss record over that time frame. So I'm not buying the Green Bay Packers to be anywhere close to 13-3 next year. And neither is Vegas. Vegas set their over-under win total at 8.5 wins. It's since moved up to 9. But the Packers could be closer to 9-7 and seven than 13-3. and three. And what does that suggest? It suggests much less positive game scripts for the Packers running game. So I'm saying no thank you to Aaron Jones in the early to mid-round two. And I don't think it's unreasonable to have a second-round grade on Jones, but he's my least favorite among the round two running backs. And I'd prefer the elite tight ends over Jones as well. And and so far, I've listed players that are very talented who I think easily could have good seasons, maybe even great seasons. I'm just not a huge fan of their price. This next one is a little more than that. He's much closer to to the traditional sense of bust. At least that's where I have him. And I can see scenarios where I draft Aaron Jones or Chris Godwin. Like maybe it's in round three and all the round two players that I like are gone. And I'll say, okay, let's, let's try it out, I guess. But this next player... I can't imagine there's any scenario where I'm drafting him. And that's Todd Gurley. Todd, 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 Todd. 27th overall average draft position. 
And to say that I think that's a reach would be a gigantic understatement. In my rankings, I'll probably have Todd Gurley 20 or 30 spots lower than 27th. I view Todd Gurley as a gigantic health concern. Ever since the knee issues, the arthritis flared up, or at least that it started getting reported an issue, the main difference in Todd Gurley is that he simply has not been used in the passing game. Last year, he ran so many pass routes. He was out there, but he barely got targeted. He just wasn't a receiving threat. He was just exercising when the Rams threw the ball. 31 catches, and that's about two catches a game. 207 receiving yards. He didn't do anything with them. A far cry from when his knee was healthy a few seasons ago, and he averaged over 60 catches and 650 receiving yards uh, in the seasons of 2017 and 2018. That was his average per season. And Todd Gurley ranks among running backs in PFF and Pro Football Focus receiving grade 132nd last year out of 137 qualifiers. And Andy Holloway from the Fantasy Footballers uh, podcast made a great point when he, he said on his show the other day, Todd Gurley, starting running back for the Falcons with seemingly no competition, has the exact same ADP as Devonta Freeman did last year, who was the starting running back for the Falcons with no competition. Mid-third round. And Freeman, as I unfortunately had to bring up often in my show a few episodes ago where I reviewed the hits and misses from my drafts guides and from my draft guide last season, and Freeman was just a huge whiff for me. He fit, Freeman finishes RB20 last season and it felt like a lot worse because he stayed relatively healthy. And I'm not going to be fooled twice here. Gurley is entering a situation where on the surface, he's a big name and he plays for a potent offense. But in reality, this offense could lead the NFL once again in passing attempts. And that's extremely problematic for Gurley because he simply adds nothing to the passing game anymore. And this is, you know, here's something that Andy Holloway didn't mention in his show. And here's kind of the rub for me. Devonta Freeman had 70 targets last year. He ranked 10th in the league among running backs with RB targets. He had 410 receiving yards and four touchdowns through the air. And he was so inefficient behind a horrible Falcons O-line on the ground last season. And they do project to improve, but Gurley was also inefficient behind an even worse Rams offensive line. Gurley was only decent last year because he scored 14 touchdowns on the ground. But Freeman did nothing on the ground as a starting running back for Atlanta. And he managed, to, he managed the RB20 finish because he could stay healthy and catch passes. And again, Freeman shockingly eighth most catches among running backs last year. Fun stat you didn't know probably. But he stayed healthy and he caught passes. And that's why he finished running back 20. And, and those are two things that we don't know if Gurley can do anymore. Stay healthy and catch passes. So I'm out on Gurley. And it sounds crazy to project now, but I think Atlanta is going to make this a running back by committee sooner than later. With who? I have no idea. I'm not going to pretend to know. And that might be why some experts have Gurley so high because there's just a total lack of competition. The Falcons' death chart at running back is weak as heck. It's quiet. Too quiet. Brian Hill, Ido Smith, I don't know. I like Hill more, but I just don't think this is a situation that ends well for Gurley despite all that. And even if I'm overrating the RBBC thought, I mean, you take away his 14 touchdowns all in the red zone last season— and you give him eight scores instead of 14, I don't think we're having this conversation. It feels like Gurley, with the arthritic knee, it feels like his career is sadly on the steep decline. And my point is that I don't think he's put into this equation if he doesn't score as many touchdowns as he did last year. He would be viewed more like Devonta Freeman, who is out of the league right now. And even if Gurley lasts the whole season, is quote-unquote healthy, plays 16 games, he'll be on some sort of pitch count because of his knee. So I'm passing on Gurley. And not only am I passing, I'm not even legitimately considering Gurley anywhere near his ADP. So next up, and this one pains me to the core, it's a shot to the heart. He's the only player that I drafted on every team last year. Every team, I had 100% exposure to Michael Gallup. Giddy up. And he came through in a big way, too. I mean, his Week 17 three-touchdown performance against the, the formerly, team formerly known as Redskins, they, he helped me win a championship. But Michael Gallup... 74th overall average draft position. It's too high. And Gallup played at wide receiver 18 pace in points per game last season. And he's being drafted at wide receiver 33. So in theory, he's a huge steal or a huge value and not someone you should avoid. But Gallup was blessed with a great situation last season. And Amari Cooper, $100 million man, Amari Cooper got hurt in the second half of last season. He tweaked his knee. 
and we don't know exactly when it was. He had precautionary MRIs in his knee and ankles, different points, but he was questionable with the knee and ankle injury in week 11 with Detroit, and that's where it first played a big role. And Cooper declared himself ready to go. He was a game-time decision for that game, but he did not play his full-time role. It's 41 snaps, a season low for him and uh, in, in for his full game, and he was only a 56% snap rate. And Darius Slay did a great job of handling the limited Cooper in Week 11. And in Week 12, Cooper was shattered by shutdown cornerback Stephon Gilmore against New England on a rainy day, and Cooper was invisible in that game. The rain didn't help, but he was clearly operating at less than 100% due to his knee injury. In Week 13, he had to play Tredavious White, another shutdown corner. And Cooper had an x-ray following that game on his knee and in, in exit in the late fourth quarter. And then in Week 14... Cooper did score a touchdown in garbage time, but he did not appear to be himself. He gutted out the knee injury. He was limping at times in week 14. Week 15, Cooper didn't have to do anything. He only had one catch. So did Michael Gallup because the Cowboys, Zeke and Tony Pollard, each had over 20 carries and like 100 yards each. And it was the fifth straight game that Cooper failed to exceed 85 receiving yards. And then in week 16, Cooper had an awful drop. He, he's out of the game, in and out of the game on cr- critical situations. This was a must win for the Cowboys against the Eagles for a playoff berth. And Cooper was, he just didn't appear to be right. The, the Cowboys were substituting him in critical moments of a, this must win game. And he only played 46 snaps in that game. And then week 17, the finale, Cooper also just kind of looked like he was going through the motions and, and Gallup dominated. So, more of the story is. Cooper faced a slew of talented cornerbacks, some of the best in the game, week after week, for a stretch where it was Darius Slay, Stephon Gilmore, Kyle Fuller, Jalen Ramsey. Man, there's just no end to these guys. And he did so while he was limited on the knee, playing hurt. And this allowed Michael Gallup to receive more of a prominent role in this offense, and a role that was equal to Amari Cooper's. And Amari Cooper played at the wide receiver two pace over weeks one through eight. And he played at the wide receiver 45 pace. That's right, wide receiver 45 in the final seven games. So clearly, Cooper was hurt. And I think a return to full health will re-solidify Cooper as the wide receiver one and go-to target for this team. But it's not just about Amari Cooper, because Michael Gallup can still thrive with Amari Cooper there. And he did so in the first half of the season. But you have Ezekiel Elliott who's going to be fed. I think you have Blake Jarwin, a tight end who I think is going to steal and be a bigger threat and steal more valuable targets and touchdowns than Jason Witten, the corpse of Jason Witten, did last year. But the main argument and the best reason to fade Michael Gallup is because of CeeDee Lamb. I mean, CeeDee Lamb has barely had an impact on Michael Gallup's ADP. He's dropped like a round since, like in the early drafts, Michael Gallup was going like a round higher than he is now. And the Cowboys drafted CeeDee Lamb 17th overall. Widely considered to be the best receiver prospect in a very deep receiver draft. And do we seriously think that C.D. Lamb is going to play just uh, the Randall Cobb role? No. Because unlike Randall Cobb, who did have an underrated season last year, he's pretty good. I'm not going to, you know, crap on Randall Cobb. But unlike Cobb, C.D. Lamb is going to be manufactured touches in this offense. The Cowboys love C.D. Lamb. And I don't think it's inconceivable to say that Lamb ends up playing over Michael Gallup in two wide receiver sets by season's end. But nobody is talking about that possibility. The Dallas defense last season was pitiful. And there's a lot of new arrivals on this defense in 2020. So I'm not going to sit here and say that they'll be better on that side of the ball. But last year, the Cowboys went 8-8. Eight and eight, And I do think that they odds are that they will be a better team than 8-8. Eight and eight. I'm going to bring up Bill Barnwell from ESPN again because... He noted that based on the Cowboys plus 113 point total uh, or point differential in 2019, the only two other teams that had a point differential within 100 and 125 were the Saints who went 13 and 3 and the Vikings who went 10 and 6. And over the past 30 years, 52 other teams have had a point differential between 100 and 125 like the Cowboys did, and they won an average of 11.2 games per year. The Cowboys went 8-8 eight and eight last year. And the Cowboys also lost five games that were one-score games last year. Law of averages here, the Cowboys are likely going to be a few games better than 8-8. Eight and eight. And Vegas does agree their win, their over-under total right now in terms of wins is, I believe, at 9.5. With the juice 
on the over. So Vegas expects Cowboys to be you know, closer to a 10-win team. So they'll have a few more positive game scripts, and they won't be forced to air it out as much as they did in 2020. There comes this time in the 70s of every draft that I've been in, like in, in picks like in round seven or in the 70s, it feels like where the best available wide receivers are Michael Gallup, Tyler Boyd, and Stephon Diggs, and I just don't want any of them. All right, so next up is Rob Gronkowski. He's going at tight end 7, 75th overall. And I'm not going to repeat myself about all the concerns I have about Tom Brady and when you compare him to Jameis Winston from a fantasy perspective. But just remember that Jameis Winston, a 5,000-yard passer last season, led the NFL in passing yardage and had 30 passing touchdowns, both of which are numbers that I don't expect Brady to hit. I mean, he could, don't get me wrong, but I would bet against it. But 5,000 yards, 30 touchdowns, and Winston still could not support He couldn't remotely support a decent tight end in this offense. O.J. Howard, one of the biggest busts in all of fantasy football. And the reason for that is because he was busy supporting Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, feeding them. And one of them or both of them seemingly had a blow-up game every single week. And it's just a harsh reminder that Rob Gronkowski is going to be a distant, distant third in targets on this team at best. A distant third option. That's the best case scenario for Rob Gronkowski. But the worst case is that Gronk is either extremely rusty after not having played football in over a year, or he's just done for, right? Like the tank is empty. And the last time we saw him play, he was battling he was battling injuries, but that's what it looked like. He, he was running out of gas. And if that's the case, he's easily replaceable. The Bucks don't have to trot him out there just because he's Gronk. The Bucks have capable tight ends in OJ Howard and Cam Brait, who are certainly no slouches. They'd start for a lot of teams. And this could wind up being a three-way tight end rotation. And I think that it will. And maybe Gronk gets the money downs. Maybe like Gronk's used in the red zone. But Bruce Arians' offense does not have a history of utilizing tight ends in the passing game. This was the knock on O.J. Howard last season that experts ignored, that I ignored. And we got burned. And Gronk's ADP as a seventh tight end taken in drafts is based on name recognition and nostalgia. And I'm not picking players in round seven based solely on production from three years ago. So no partying for me. The next NFC player that I'll be avoiding in drafts is Debo Samuel. 86th overall ADP, which is shocking. Like, I'm, I'm stunned by it. Debo Samuel suffered a broken left foot during a workout with teammates like a month ago. How is his ADP? This is the updated ADP. This is updated as of like yesterday. How is Debo Samuel still going 86th overall? How is he still going in the top 100? How is he still going in the top 120? Jones fractures can cause, which is what he had, it can cause all sort of complications moving forward. And at the time that he broke his foot, it was a 12 to 16 week timetable. And at the time, everyone was saying, oh yeah, he's likely to start the season on the pup list, which means he misses the first six games of the year. That's if the schedule went as planned. It rarely does. It rarely is optimistic. And John Lynch, GM of the 49ers, just came out and said he he wouldn't be surprised if Demo Samuel misses games. Yeah, no joke. Which in my injury pessimistic translation means that we should expect him to miss games. John Lynch, his own GM, saying we shouldn't be surprised if Debo misses games. That means we should be surprised if Debo doesn't miss games. And remember... A.J. Green, similar situation last year. Foot or ankle injury, sideline, you're supposed to sideline him for the, only the first four games last season. People were still taking him in like round six or seven. He winded up playing zero games. And I'm not suggesting Debo Samuel is going to just sit out this season like A.J. Green did last year. But you never know. It's in the realm of possibility that Debo Samuel it either ends up on PUP and misses the first six games, to which you have to hold him in a, in a season of COVID where players are going to be matriculating off on and off your roster constantly. You're not going to want to hold them during that. You're going to need the space. And it's also in the realm of possibility that Debo Samuel just takes the year off and the Niners play it slow and patient with their guy. We don't know. But even if he returns, let's say he returns, let's say he doesn't go on the PUP list. Debo's injury history remains concerning. According to Jared Smola of DraftSharks.com, in 2015, 
Debo Samuel missed seven games with a hamstring injury. 2016, this is when he was in college, missed three games with another hamstring injury. 2017, missed 10 games with a broken leg. 2018, he was healthy. 2019, missed minicamp with a hip injury. Missed week seven with a growing injury. Had shoulder injury in November. And in, week, in 2020, the Jones fracture. Broken left foot. Debo Samuel is a very dangerous draft pick because he's unlikely to stay healthy. And Samuel was a popular breakout candidate before this injury. I think that's one of the reasons his ADP is sticking to above 100. But, you know, he finished strongly in the final 11 games last season. But it wasn't as strongly as some may recall. Debo Samuel in the final 11 games post-Emmanuel Sanders injury and post his snap increase. You know, and that's eight regular season games, three playoff games. Debo Samuel scored 14.68 points per game. That was only wide receiver 23 pace. And that was considered a very strong finish for Debo Samuel. Wide receiver 23 pace. And concerningly, George Kittle was out for weeks 10 and 11. And those were two of Debo Samuel's best games. It was the only two games all season where Debo Samuel saw nine or more targets or six or more catches. And it was two of his highest receiving yards totals. In week 10, Samuel had eight catches for 112 yards. In week 11, Eight catches for 134 yards. His two best games in terms of usage all season came in the two games that George Kittle missed. Major game logging red flag. And the Niners have a low volume passing attack with Jimmy Garoppolo because the 49ers rely so heavily on their running game. And this was a team that only attempted 19 passes and then eight passes in their two NFC playoff games before the Super Bowl. 19 passes and eight passes. They can do that. In both games, they blew out their opponent too. It's a low-volume passing game, and the team has George Kittle as the lead option, who will get more usage and targets than Samuel, even if Samuel were healthy. And then the Niners also went out and traded up in the first round of the draft to get Brandon Ayuk, wide receiver. Pass-catching running back Jarek McKinnon, supposedly healthy, coming back from missing all last season. Jalen Hurd, wide receiver slash running back kind of weapon there, missed all of last season. Trent Taylor, another slot receiver, missed most of last season, there are, and not to mention first-round pick Brandon Ayuk, way more competitions for target in a low-volume passing offense. So even if Samuel were healthy, which I think is an extremely, I don't even want to say optimistic point of view, I want to just say naive point of view, that he's going to just suit up in week one and be 100%. But even if he were, he would be tough to trust based on his situation. And the injury knocks him out of fantasy contention for me. He's somebody who I'll fade this year and probably end up with as a target next year when the pendulum swings the other way and is a year removed from his foot fracture and his ADP is suppressed after an underwhelming season, which I think he will have this year. And that's when I'd rather pounce on a talent like Samuel. So those are my NFC fades. I do have a bonus player to avoid that I will reveal on my Instagram in the next day or two on an Instagram story. And you can follow me on Instagram at fantasy law guy to see me reveal who that last player is i'll give you a hint he does play in the nfc but okay let's end the show with a fantasy nugget all right this fantasy nugget of today's show is from jared smola at smoladsdraftsharks.com i think he has the record amount of fantasy nuggets he's quite good jared is at the tweeter but this one's about Nicole Hardman, Chiefs' third receiver. Nicole Hardman's targets in games where Tyreek Hill and Sammy Watkins were healthy last year, including playoffs. Two, zero, one, zero, one, two, zero, one, four, one, one. Nicole Hardman had 11 targets total in his last nine games that he played and ran less than 10 routes in three of his final five games for the Kansas City Chiefs. So Jared is definitely throwing some cold water on the popular sleeper, Nicole Hardman, who, for what it's worth, is being drafted at 119th overall. And that is the fantasy nugget of the day. And that'll conclude today's episode. Be sure to listen to episode 14. That's AFC Players to Avoid if you like this episode. And next episode, I'll be breaking down Matthew Berry's annual Draft Day Manifesto. It's going to be a great show, so stay tuned for that. And if you do enjoy listening to this podcast, do me a huge favor. Hit the subscribe button and give this podcast a five-star rating. Write a favorable review. 
I said that really fast. Write a favorable review, please. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.